Welcome to the GrowthCap Podcast, where we chat with CEOs, investors, and other key industry leaders to uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. When it comes to growth equity, John Korngold, global head of Blackstone Growth, is as good as it gets. Perhaps he can be considered one of the few who sets today's bar in the asset class. His rapid rise began at Goldman Sachs at General Atlantic. But maybe it began even earlier. Maybe it began with a piece of advice his father gave him when he was growing up. Blackstone recently announced the final close of Blackstone Growth, BXG, its inaugural growth equity fund. BXG was oversubscribed and closed at its hard cap of $4.5 billion, with third-party capital commitments from a wide range of family offices, entrepreneurs, endowments, strategic institutional investors, pension funds, high net worth individuals, and other investors, making it the largest first-time growth equity private fund raised in history. We cover a lot of ground in our conversation, from Blackstone Growth's approach to growth equity, to its unique platform capabilities, to the importance of ESG. We hope you enjoy the show. So, John, delighted to chat with you today. Thanks so much for joining. I typically launch right in and have folks give their background as well as their firm's background. But I want to pause for a second and just say, wow, like Blackstone has entered kind of the growth equity space in a big way. And maybe if you can refresh my memory about when the firm actually got into it, but I feel like it's really in the last few years where the firm has really had a dedicated focus. So maybe we could kick off with some kind of recent highlights on Blackstone, and then we could hear about yourself as well. Sure, happy to. Thanks for having me today. It's good to see you. Growth equity is not new to Blackstone. I think that having a dedicated pool of capital focused on that is a newer initiative. I joined in January of 2019 with the idea of building out a global growth equity business. And we had the luxury of a blank sheet of paper. And it's not always the case in a mature market on the investment side where you do have that blank sheet of paper to reimagine what growth equity might look like. And we've, I think, since done that in the last two and a half years. We just finalized our first capital raise about a month ago. We raised about $4.5 billion of external capital in addition to the direct investments from the firm and our balance sheet and our partners around there. So we were pleased with at least the LP reception because there's always a question, does the world need more growth equity? And we're flattered that LP certainly came to the conclusion that at least our flavor of growth equity was sufficiently differentiated in their mind. And so that was, I think, a nice recognition of that. We've also built out a full global team. We have offices in San Francisco, New York, London, and most recently Tel Aviv. So we have people on the ground, full partners dedicated to BXG, what we call Blackstone Growth. But importantly, there's not a single pool of capital anywhere in all of Blackstone, our 25 plus offices, that competes with what we do, which is taking kind of large scale resources and bringing them back to support very, very fast growing companies in what I'll call their adolescent phase, if you will. And the challenge for them is not capital. It's more about how do you minimize the execution risks that are associated with hyper growth expansion. And so if we're doing our job well, we're finding these regional champions and giving them access to this industrial grade set of resources and networks that Blackstone can uniquely provide and help them become much more global industry leaders in that regard. Everyone we've hired has got a kind of more of a growth equity, growth buyout background. So I'd say authentic to growth and technology, but we speak Blackstone fluently. And I think therefore are able to extract the synergies that are uniquely available to us 
when you joined, it seems like you were, as you're saying, building kind of like this formalized effort and maybe you know separate funds, so to speak. And you're really bringing in, it's kind of like the best of both worlds. Like General Atlantic is very well known in the growth equity space. And then you have Blackstone. When you think of private equity, you think of Blackstone. And so it's still kind of a challenge, right? Even though you're part of a huge platform, it's still a challenge to make sure this thing gets off the ground, gets off to a good start and has some early wins. And you've been able to do that. So how have you been able to kind of identify the appropriate opportunities for the Blackstone platform? Sure. Well, the first was we didn't start BXG because we think the world needed more growth equity. There's plenty of growth equity. And so, but for us, we said there's a unique way to focus on creating value much more through operational excellence than maybe the more passive momentum, almost index fund-like exposure that sometimes characterizes growth equity portfolios. And 15 years of a bull market make us all look a lot smarter than we otherwise are. And so you're naturally tempted to do more and more of it. And that's not an irrational strategy. But for us, we said that strategy works probably better in a bull market. And it's not clear that that's going to lead to the most consistent sources of value creation throughout cycles, not just in a bull market. And one of the ways we tried to do that is saying we have nearly $650 billion of assets. And that massive base does afford us the luxury, the structural advantage of having a massive amount of operational capabilities, 100 plus operating executives, dozens of data scientists, nearly $165 billion of revenue in our ecosystem. We buy centrally on behalf of 450,000 people. So we can take these companies and give them kind of an enterprise grade access. We're consistently one of the largest fee payers to the service industry. And that at least ensures there's an audience to be had when these small growth companies can now get access to the C-level decision makers of the banks and the consulting firms and the accounting firms. And that's really important in enterprise technology, especially. We've got nearly a billion square feet of e-commerce logistics warehouses. And so we've got this industrial grade set of capabilities that if we can bring those back down to companies in their adolescence to help them do things that perhaps they otherwise wouldn't be able to do. But most importantly, besides that broad set of resources, we focus them on a much more curated portfolio. And to your question, like what is a BXG deal? It's one where we really can function more as a strategic. We just happen to be in the skin of a growth equity arm. And so our whole fund at maturity will probably have, and I'll call it 15 or 20 companies total. I mean, there's some firms that'll do that in a week or two. And so for us, we want to marry a much more curated group of companies with access to a massive base of resources. And we think by doing that, we really can be a kingmaker and help these companies fight way above their weight class while they have an opportunity to do so. The companies we invest in are not venture stage. Doesn't mean they're not profitable. I mean, or they're unprofitable. It must be profitable. For us, it does have to have proven unit economics, though. Right? So the companies we invest in, ironically, don't need your capital. They're looking for capital helps. I mean, it's a catalyst to justify your engagement. It gives them opportunities they didn't otherwise have. But it's much more around how do you minimize the operational strains? Not call that execution risk. And so for us, zeros and ones don't exist in our portfolio, at least in our mindset. And so we're looking for capital preservation minded, but playing for really this open-ended upside. And that's where using our scale does provide these companies with a sufficient escape velocity to kind of get to where they need to be. But the companies we've invested in so far, a company like Bumble, for example, certainly didn't need our capital. Oatly is another great company we're proud to partner with. Epidemic Sound, GeoComply, 
hydrogen health, ginger health. And, you know, we've got a few more we're soon in a position to announce. And each of those were ones that were either entirely bootstrapped or had a great set of early partners, but they saw us as a natural extension of those resources that they weren't otherwise available to them. And so given everything you've explained and the particular flavor of growth equity that you, I guess, play in, you alluded to the finite set of opportunities that you would focus on. Does that mean that there are, by definition, less competitors that can kind of fill the specific role that Blackstone growth would? Certainly capital these days is increasing a commodity. There are not that many companies that can maybe keep up with some of the size checks we will do. I think for us, it's more measured by the scope of a company's operational ambitions or kind of growth ambitions. We're looking for company where the market opportunity is big enough. I never have to size the market. I have a simple rule. If I have to go hire a consulting firm to measure the TAM, it's too small. If it's not too small for us, it's going to be too small for someone else thereafter. And so for us, the check size happens to be one litmus test, but much more importantly, it's the scale of their ambition where maybe those ambitions have outgrown growth equity. They just haven't outgrown Blackstone just yet. And when you take a look at Blackstone and kind of all the headlines that are coming out recently, growth happens to be one of the main themes. So it really feels like the firm as a whole is focused on this strategy where do you see this kind of heading over the next few to several years? Well, I certainly think that growth, the natural selection bias is it puts you on the right side of history. And you know, there's great tailwinds. Yellow pages were great until Google came along and taxi medallions were great until Uber came along. So we're always looking for opportunities to leverage innovation, both offensively to kind of get exposure to the best ones. We're very mindful of making sure we're not in legacy companies that are also at risk of being disrupted. And so the whole firm, if you look at all of our asset classes, we really do operate as one Blackstone and cross-pollinating the IP that we're picking up across all of our individual business units to help give us an edge as to where the world might be moving. So if you look at our Blackstone Capital Partners Group, which is our large-scale private equity business, a huge portion of their activity over the years, not just in the recent year or two, I mean, just in many years under Joe and Martin and the team there have really pivoted towards kind of the growth-oriented sectors. You look at what we're doing in BAM, very much the same thing. BXG, by definition, our real estate portfolio has always been indexed against e-commerce and kind of fast-growing areas of life sciences. And so I think what you're going to find is more and more intersection across all of our asset classes that are taking us in that direction. I think a lot of it is because the way we define growth and growth equity and technology is not tech as a destination to itself. I think that's far too limiting. What we've realized is that growth equity is much more around the technology enablement of large traditional industries. So retail and e-commerce, those are one and the same. Or fintech and financial services, those are one and the same. So when people say fintech, to me, it's such a misnomer because there's not an aspect of financial services that's not somehow thoughtfully and extensively using technology. Same here with healthcare and healthcare IT. So you're going to see a lot more coming around that slipstream of growth and technology enablement in Blackstone in the years to come. What we've seen also that's become, I guess, somewhat pervasive across not only the broader economy, but also in the private equity world is this overlay of ESG and, you know, what's happening in business as it pertains to stewardship of resources, broadly speaking, And Blackstone being, again, one of the kind of leaders in the private equity world, would be interesting to get your thoughts on how kind of the firm looks at ESG, how it 
supports it, implements it, etc.? ESG is a core lens through which we look when we evaluate opportunities. It's important from a societal point of view. It's important from a corporate values perspective. So everything we do is always kind of viewed in the context of, are we making society better? There's plenty of ways to do good by doing well by society. And, you know, look at the examples in PXG's portfolio, Bumble, for example, where you have kind of promoting more equality. You bring the female at the center of her professional lives. You've got Oatly as an example, which is a massive play on environmental, 80% fewer greenhouse impact because of using oats versus cow milk, as an example. We've made certain incredibly ambitious promises, which we've delivered upon with regard to reducing carbon emissions on the companies that we own control of, or making sure there's representation on our boards, reflective of the diversity of the world that we live in. And Bumble is a great example of that. Once again, you know, there you have eight of our 11 board members are female. You have the majority of the Bumble leadership management team is female. And that's, we're not engineering for that. That's just the right way to do business. And if you do that well, you know, we'll go to the end of the earth to go find the best talent pools. And I think that's reflective also in the hiring that we do at Blackstone. So there's great commitment both on DEI and environmental impact. And it's not a fad. And for us, it's just the core way in which we operate our business. That's excellent. Maybe stepping back a little bit, because I don't think we got fully into your background, but for the benefit of our audience, I think they really uh, enjoy hearing, particularly the CEOs, hearing about investors and who they are and how they got their start. So did you always know from the age of five that you were going to be in private equity? No way, no chance. I grew up in a family of medicine. My dad's a doctor, my mother's a nurse, my brother's a doctor, my wife is now a clinician. I thought for sure I was going to end up in the medical world. And I would have been happy there. I always look at what my parents have done over the years and yeah, I love what they're doing. They help out people. But my father you know, encouraged me earlier on in my life as I was about to go into college to say, hey, there's other ways in which you might be able to still make the world a better place. But, you know, the medical world is changing and you at least need to be mindful of how those changes uh, might present themselves. And so what you see my life look like and kind of the autonomy that we have as doctors, that might be different in the future. And it's not better or worse. It's just going to be different. So he helped me at least open my eyes to there are things beyond medicine, because naturally growing up in a family of doctors and you only think that it's only a medical field is your end state. And so I ended up focusing my studies on Mandarin. And for me, I thought is such a great way to challenge myself and take advantage of the resources of a school like what Harvard can give me. And I think it, for me, highlighted that inherent inside me, there is this cultural sensitivity, but candidly, it probably wasn't as refined as it needed to be because I just wasn't exposed to much. And you get to a place like that and it opened my eyes. Coming out of college, I ended up spending some time in China, which was great. I basically volunteered at the U.S. Embassy and the Foreign Commercial Service. No, I had no intention of being in the State Department. I said, look, I'll work for free. I just want to learn business Chinese. and I'm happy to be helpful if I can. And then that forever changed my course. I knew I wanted to be in a global firm. I wanted to be a citizen of the world, not just a citizen of America. And all too often, you know, Americans carry, unfortunately, a reputation of being more myopic and not seeing the world enough. And that's something I don't subscribe to. I live in New York. It's the most probably multicultural city in the world. But I knew early on in my days, I wanted to be part of a global organization. So I went to Goldman Sachs and started in a technology M&A group. And I wanted to try my hand on the principal investing side. So I moved out to London to go work in their large-scale principal investment team, doing large-scale buyouts. Following that, I went back to Harvard Business School, still committed to staying on this track of pursuing global organizations. And I love the principal side, but I want to focus more on kind of the growth and technology space. And so I left the more traditional buyout world 
to practice my craft and hone my craft in the growth equity space. And as you pointed out, I had the privilege of spending 18 years at General Atlantic, which is a fabulous growth equity firm, arguably the gold standard in this space. And so if you're going to graduate from a growth equity university, GA is a great place to have done it from. And watching that over 18 years gave me the luxury of really understanding how the ecosystem more broadly and growth equity was evolving. In large part, that informed my view on where the opportunity might be to have that blank sheet of paper to rethink a structurally and philosophically different approach to growth equity. And that's what now has manifested itself in the form of BXG. There's a couple questions that I typically like to ask folks, and this is kind of towards the end of the interview as I'm eyeing the clock here. But one of the questions, and this is a good segue from what you just spoke about because you've had great experiences throughout your career. What has been like one of the most challenging times in your professional career? What was challenging about it? And typically I like to hone in on kind of that. I think everyone or many people have a moment where they're like, oh man, I don't know if I'm going to get through this or this is the most daunting thing I've ever had to face. But you face it and you get through it, you're on the other side and you're kind of proud of yourself for having dealt with it and figured it out. Can you share with us an experience? Does one come to mind? Yeah, but just think about even my own career in growth equity. Even though I was at one firm for 18 years, I wore so many different hats there and I was never in a position to allow myself to get comfortable being comfortable and always putting myself out of my comfort zone. So I was in our tech area. I moved out to London. I came back to go run our healthcare group, did that for seven years and once the flywheel is running there, just when you think you're comfortable, I'm asked to go move into financial services. I ran our financial service group for seven years. And just when I thought things were comfortable, once again, they asked me to chair the firm's portfolio committee and spend time around the operational side of it. And so I never allowed myself to get comfortable. And what was daunting as I was being asked to make these moves in my own career, it made me better for what it was. And I'll never forget one of my mentors from my previous job always said, think of your career as a tree. Now bear with me on this analogy, but in your junior part of your life, you should think about the roots, like getting broad exposure, learning how to assess business models, assess management teams, think about valuation. And then in the middle part of your career, where you're really going to differentiate yourself through the trunk of the tree is deep specialization. And so I had the luxury of having, well, I wasn't wired to wire through the whole trunk in one sector. There were large enough segments where I really did become at least somewhat of an expert in areas of healthcare and financial services and business services. And then once you get more senior again, you become the branches and you can more holistically kind of draw on the lessons from kind of below the tree. I think about that a lot. And so even my move to China as a growing up in a relatively provincial background, I never really left the country outside of Canada until I got to college and moving out to China, there was no mobile phones at the time. There was no email really at the time. I used a payphone. The currencies were different. I mean, just the whole world was different. I've always looked for ways to challenge myself and put myself in a comfort zone and probably no more pronounced risk in my life than leaving a very, very comfortable perch at a fabulous firm to go restart my career at Blackstone. It was late forties. And I said, like, this is a good time as any to go try it. If you liken myself to a car, you know, I think I have six gears. I think I've really been using five gears really productively, but I'll always regret it if I don't see if there's a six gear and just see how fast I can race. And that probably, to me, I'm most proud of not allowing myself to stay comfortable and taking a chance at something completely different. And I look back in the last couple of years have been two of the best years of my life. And so I'm so thankful for the privilege of being part of the Blackstone team and for the firm to take a chance on kind of building this initiative around me and the team that we've since assembled. Last question is, is there someone, and maybe this relates to what you just mentioned in your last answer, is there someone that you particularly 
have admired throughout your career, and you think about as you're about to make a tough decision, you think about how would that person look at this problem? How would that person evaluate this problem? How would they define the parameters? It could be anyone recently, anyone in the past. People have sometimes mentioned folks in their childhood, and some people have said there's many. But is there a person that comes to mind? Because there's so many mentors along the way that give me such good advice. At the end of each day, I try to jot down one thing I learned. And I said, look, over the course of a year, if you can learn 365 things and you do that over the course of your life, you're, you become a wise person. So I always try to learn from someone in every meeting I take. And I've got enough humility to know I'm never going to invent anything in the four walls of my office or in my brain. So I'm always out there trying to connect the dots. I would say my father, and I know it sounds like a trite answer, but I think over the years, my dad always used to instill, even the youngest, when I would want to go try out for a team or be president of my class and say, oh, I might not win. And he always gave me the confidence saying, well, if not you, then who? Like somebody has to win. Why not you? And I think kind of reminding yourself that anything is possible, even though I didn't come from a pedigreed upbringing. I went, there was a very, very comfortable middle-class person in a public school, but my father always kind of gave me the courage to say, if not you, then who? And I think both he and my mother, for that matter, always gave me the courage to say, when you look at opportunities in life, you should say, would I regret in five years time if I didn't take that chance right now? And fortunately for me, I was always given interesting roles that kept me there. And I think for me, and especially in joining Blackstone, I said, yeah, actually, I probably would regret not taking that opportunity. And so I look back to my earliest days with my mom and my dad, who really gave me the courage to believe in myself and to say, don't ever get intimidated. My dad, I remember when I was young, used to say, if you ever speak to a CEO, you remember that that CEO is probably at that time, not my age, speaking to about his own age. He said, you're talking to someone's dad or someone's mother. And don't be intimidated by that. You don't get intimidated when I have my friends over and you talk to them. And, and so I think at the earliest days, it maybe gave me more confidence than I probably deserved. No doubt that was formative and all the risks I thereafter felt comfortable taking. Well, that's a wonderful note to end on and some very kind of practical advice that has served you well throughout the years. So John, thank you again so much for taking the time to chat today. Really appreciate it. I know our audience will find this very insightful. No, thanks so much for having me today. I really appreciate it. 